It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Just sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Howdy and welcome to Democracy Sausage and indeed to the new world of a majority Labor government. A massively expanded crossbench, a big influx of women and new leaders of the two coalition parties. Yep, there's been a bit happening in national politics and a lot of it, a lot of it indeed, has been local as well. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute at ANU, and with me this week, of course, are Dr. Maria Teflaga, political scientist and director of the Centre for the Study of Australian Politics. Maria, has rather been action-packed, hasn't it? Ah, oh, yes. Yes, a, a news headline a minute. Yes, it has been action-packed. Yeah, because we don't get uh, changes of government as often as people tend to think, as we've often observed on this podcast and many others have observed it as well. It's only the fourth time Labor's done it since the Second World War. Uh, so that in itself is a big story. And there was some criticism on, on election night of some of the coverage, you know, focusing on some other things and not actually recognising the historical nature, you know, that sort of big moment that had occurred, which was a change of government. Uh, I think that got corrected in real time as, uh, as uh, broadcasters can do these days. But uh, that makes sense. But we also kind of saw like, I mean, we saw a change of government, which is, I guess, a historical happening that we have seen before. But we also did sort of see the kind of collapse of um, the sort of core of a of our major and most successful party of government. So mm. I can kind of understand why uh, the focus was on um, what was a pretty profound train wreck. Yeah, that's true. Although there was some reaction to some of the questions that were put to uh, for example, um, Tanya Plibersek, uh, which sort of suggested that, you know, Labor had somehow fallen short. And and it is interesting to think that uh, Labor now has a majority, uh, according to the projections that uh, finally have given the seat of McNamara to Labor, taking it to 76, so a majority. Um, but uh, that's uh, what one of the things that's really surprising about that is that comes with the loss of three seats. Um, uh, Gilmore? which looks like it's going to Andrew Constance and the Liberals. Um, 
the seat of Griffith, I think, which is uh, formerly Terry Butler's seat, for a former front bencher. And, of course, Fowler, where Christina Keneally was unable to hold on to that Labor seat there. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually, a 76-seat um, hall for Labor with the loss of three seats, two of which I think were not, you know, Gilmore was always a bit iffy and could have gone that way, but no one had factored in really losing Griffith or Fowler. So pretty extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it sort of speaks to the fact that uh, norms and ideas that we have about what elections look like in Australia are finally um, kind of bucking, I guess, that sort of those heuristics that journalists use to interpret results. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of the coverage on election night reflected, I guess, um, journalists learning in in real time that the electorate had really pulled a fast one on them. That's true. And and those heuristics, uh, I think, had, uh, as as we've commented before as well, affected really the way some of the coverage occurred in the lead-up to the election as there was this kind of normative uh, assessment of the way elections were meant to run and anything that deviated from that was seen to be dysfunctional. The prospect of independence, for example, shaking up the, the order was depicted by a lot in the media as if this was somehow ipso facto unhealthy or, you know, some as I say, some sort of dysfunction. That's what we're going to get into uh, a fair bit today, uh, obviously, now that uh, we've we've seen the, this massive crossbench. So I'm delighted to welcome back to Democracy Sausage two more political scientists who've had a keen interest in the phenomenon of what we might call third-way politics, and I'm not talking about Tony Blair's version of it, but a, a kind of a alternative to the to the binary of you know Labor versus the non-Labor parties. Those two political scientists are Professors Shirley Leach and Carolyn Hendricks. Shirley Leach is a Professor Emeritus with the Australian Studies Institute. Welcome back, Shirley, from Melbourne, where I understand you've uh, had a little bit of trouble with the lurgy like most of us, me included. Oh, thanks, Mark. Yes, I'm uh, still in ISO, uh, living here in the borderlands between Goldstein and McNamara. And But I have to say that despite having had COVID for the last five days, uh, I've been having a lot of fun here watching the election results unfold. Well, it has been. There's been so much to look at, hasn't it? There's, no one could say this election was, was boring. And as, as I was saying before, nor predictable, even if... Um, even if it did look like a change of government was uh, in the offing, um, there was always doubts about how Labor could get to 76 from 69. Uh, that was always accepted to be quite hard for Labor to do. A lot of people were sort of saying, well, in, in ordinary circumstances, the government's position was a stronger one. Um, so, yeah, and then, of course, that was before we knew of many of the variables that the uh, electors have thrown up since. So, as I say, we'll get into that in a moment. Our other political scientist is Carolyn Hendricks, who is Professor of Public Policy and Governance at the world-renowned Crawford School of Public Policy, an institution which is also a great supporter of Democracy Sausage. And, Carolyn, we've spoken before about your research on the rise of community independence. There's plenty to examine now. Yeah, my my field studies have just expanded. Um, but there's also a lot of, um, I guess, hidden stories, I think, in, in what happened in this election, which will be good to dive into as well. Yeah, absolutely. Were you sort of surprised as, as the rest of us by the outcome? Um, look, I think the the outcome from the 
you know, community-minded independence, really, it, it was a story of metro seats that, that that sort of fell at the independence way. But if you look into the data, there's quite a lot of community independence um, candidates that almost got up, got, they got high, well, big margins against the often the National Party. So I was watching those particularly because I think, you know, you started to see um, the contests in, in the metro seats. There was, a, in some cases, a disliked incumbent and that, that dynamic wasn't sort of playing out in the bush, uh, but still these, um, these, these community movements uh, managed to, to have quite an electoral impact and make their seats more marginal. Yeah, that idea of the disliked incumbent is, 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 is interesting, isn't it? Because you probably wouldn't say that about Frydenberg. Uh, in Kuyong, although, Shirley, and you're on the ground there, there was a fair bit of antipathy for uh, Josh Frydenberg's uh, fairly muscular attacks on on uh, Victoria and the Victorian state government during the, the lockdowns. And people were still talking about that, surprisingly. So it wasn't, uh, you know, so Frydenberg was obviously the, uh, the treasurer, deputy leader of the Liberal Party, very closely associated with Scott Morrison, and so you might argue he was definitely a an unpopular incumbent, an unpopular incumbent prime minister. But Frydenberg himself, those remarks about lockdowns and so forth, notwithstanding, you know, wasn't you know dramatically disliked. I wouldn't have thought. No, I don't think he was dramatically disliked. I think people underestimated the extent to which the COVID lockdowns had really fractured the Australian community. And when people tried to talk about what was happening in Australia, it was it was actually the wrong way to look at it. You really needed to look at the selection from the bottom up, not from the top down. Yeah, good point. Really interesting point. Here in Victoria, um, to a lesser extent, I guess, than happened in Western Australia, we, we went through a very, very long, hard lockdown here. We were... Um, you know, a little bit fractured about some of the peripheral elements of that, things like the curfews and so forth. But overall, I think Victorians were very proud of what they'd achieved here. And I think Western Australians were also really proud of what they'd done to actually keep COVID out of their state for so long. And when the, when the, when the Treasurer mounted, started to mount attacks on Victoria, there was quite a lot of shock here that a Victorian representative would double down on hitting his own state when people were already hurting really, really badly. Now, whatever his intentions were, there were a lot of people who remember that. Yeah, it was a surprising misreading in a way of uh, the, the the mentality of Victorians and I suppose of all of the states really. A reminder, Maria, that we're actually quite parochial. We're a federation and um, and we see ourselves as Australians, but we also see ourselves in, in state terms perhaps more than is often appreciated. I mean, you see it, I used to certainly see it growing up in South Australia. If we ever beat Victoria in the football, it was, um, you know, that was that was just about better than anything else that could be imagined because Victoria was seen as the sort of number one state. But, you know, those sort of, um, those sort of identities uh, are really powerful. And Frydenberg was seen as as someone who was speaking against his state on the national uh, on the national stage, and it just didn't go down well with Victorians. Well, I mean, I think what it kind of highlights is that uh, you know a lot about politics is very emotional, and COVID, especially if you lived in 
Victoria, which really did suffer. I mean, you know, we're talking about the longest lockdowns experienced anywhere in the world. Like the, the psychological impact of that has obviously been really polarizing with people who absolutely hate Dan Andrews. And we saw those extremely ugly scenes outside of the Victorian Parliament. But it seems like there was a much larger group of people who felt like those lockdowns were worth something and had meant something. And I think to have um, uh, Josh Frydenberg attack them and to have the government sort of the federal government play hard and fast uh, with, you know, some of the pandemic support, particularly when it seemed like New South Wales was receiving more favourable treatment, if you recall, when uh, the uh, sort of COVID JobKeeper-style payments were extended to New South Wales but not to Victoria. You know, and I, I think that clearly must have tapped into um, – a deep kind of emotional undercurrent and and people don't forget things like that. It's like sort of what we sort of saw in Fowler as well, right? You know, yeah. uh, people people were angry and and the thing is, right, there are there will always be a cohort of voters who will frankly never forgive whichever party it is they blame for that in 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 the same way that people don't forget and forgive seventeen percent interest rates. Even though, you know, the conditions that allowed those interest rates to rise to that level simply don't exist institutionally anymore. And 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 I think I think that's sort of something that we sometimes sort of um, forget, particularly uh, if we didn't go through uh, those lockdowns. Yeah, it's an interesting point that uh, sort of if, if you happen to be Johnny on the spot, you're the government when uh, really hostile circumstances arise – Perhaps uh, those that uh, you have no, you know, way of controlling initially. Um, that how you handle it is important, but there will be some people in the electorate, particularly if they are disadvantaged in a sort of fairly deep and structural way, will will often hold those, uh, you know, hold that strongly against the government. It's, um, you know, it used to be said, for example, back in the days of. Um, you know, the chaos when Tony Abbott was opposition leader against Julia Gillard and there were cardboard cutouts brought into Parliament, stunts plenty, and everything else. And I remember a number of observers said at the time, I may have even added to this myself at the time, that the chaos of the Parliament would reflect poorly on the government, even though it wasn't the government doing it. It was largely the opposition. But, um, Carolyn, any thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, I just want to come back to that that point about the federation, you know, that, that, that people identify themselves with the state. And I think actually what, what I've observed in this election is actually a finer-grained geographic effect, which is that people identify themselves with place and, yeah. and locality and that the, the community independence and, and, and people like Dai Li really sort of demonstrate that in, in Fowler, that, that actually people – People are connected to place, and I think the COVID lockdowns, wherever they've occurred, have uh, really brought people's connections even stronger to that locality. And so you've gone from possibly parties particularly thinking of the electorate as one mass or possibly on a state basis to now, you know, neglecting that that nuance that that people are connected to where they live um and someone like Frydenberg you know not being able to recognize you know what the people of of Kuyong needed what the people of Victoria were feeling i mean that just sort of demonstrates party over locality and that elected local elected representative um expectation that the community seems to have yeah it's a good point one of the things that 
was a really potent line that Dan Andrews had around that time and, and others in the Victorian government was that Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister for New South Wales. Yeah. And of course, rivalry between Victoria and New South Wales has, has, has long been, I mean, we're sitting here in, you and I are at least sitting here in, and, and Maria, sitting here in Canberra, um, which was had to be located between these two rival capitals um, rather than lo- you know have the capital located at one of them. Uh, and so for Frydenberg, the, the, the two I see of the government to be seen to be siding with Morrison rather than Victorians um, and by extension rather than the constituents of Kuyong, for example, who are also Victorians, yeah, it, uh, it turned out to be a pretty big misjudgment. And I'd be interested, um, Shirley, in, in your view about this. Uh, I've seen some very strong criticism. In fact, Joe Aston wrote a very um, stinging piece yesterday in the Fin Review, uh, in a rear window column, I think it's called, um, against Josh Frydenberg. And uh, he he suggested that, you know, Frydenberg had been, you know, highly, you know, highly successful at uh, networking with the media, he's an extremely hard worker and everything else. But when it came to the campaign itself, they threw an enormous amount of money at it. But the the argument that was put up was basically save Josh. It wasn't really there was no real depth to the sort of policy argument. So it was it was a similar sort of approach. I wonder, did you notice that that you know there was plenty of advertising around about Josh Frydenberg, but not really a deeper engagement in some cases with the you know the the, the reasons why electors should do so. I think you're spot on there, Mark. One of the issues was that uh, Frydenberg both needed to distance himself from Morrison, who was really on the nose in Victoria, as at the, well, at the same time uh, avoiding, I guess, deserting his own party, given that he was such a prominent part of the uh, coalition government for the, you know, particularly in the last um, the last term. One of the things that I really noticed on the ground in in Goldstein electorate with Tim Wilson was the extent to which he didn't identify his primary role as being the local member. As he was campaigning, he would walk up to voters and introduce himself as their local member, and his instant um, selling line after that was, and send me back to Canberra. Mm. Which is not exactly a compelling message. No, Certainly wasn't. I, I'm Tim Wilson. <laughs> send me back to Canberra. Someone um, wanted to send him somewhere, but it might not have been Canberra. <laughs> um, and they eventually did. It might have been Coventry. Um, but uh, yeah, it, that sort of de-branding is quite interesting in itself, and that that tells you everything about you know a, a government on the slide, a government going out the exit. Uh, Marie, do you think that this was looking at it overall? This was. Um, and perhaps, you know, to be fair, this was something Labor was capitalising on as well, pretty unambiguously, but this was a case of a government losing rather than an opposition winning, as is the, you know, sort of standard trope analysis of Australian politics. Uh, yeah, I would say that's a fair description, particularly given that um, whilst the Labor Party has cobbled together a majority, I mean, it's, it's taken them a week of counting um, to, to do that. I mean, I think the reality is is that most governments um, do lose um, and I think that is a bit of a, an issue in Australian politics. I mean, the, the whole point about um, the Westminster, our, our Westminster system, right, is that it's sort of based on the principle of alternation between government and opposition. This is what is supposed to keep the opposition honest, for example, and responsible as opposed to, you know, crazy in the way that um, – 
the Abbott government, uh, the Abbott, sorry, the Abbott opposition was, you know, highly destructive and um, really did smash up a lot of parliamentary norms which have not repaired themselves. Um, and and in this country, and, and the UK is the same, it has the same problem and so does Canada, um, you know, you don't see that change of government. You do see very long-lived governments that go on and on and on and on, get tired, run out of ideas, probably go for one parliament too many um, end up trashing their brands as a result of that. And it is a sort of foible of our system, um, you know, which would require like a different voting system probably to see um, a change of that. But it is sort of, I guess, what we're um, lumped with. And it does have implications for governance. You know, parties are now just less transparent about about their intentions and even about their ideals because we do have this sort of phenomena of scare campaigns, you know, and, and part of that I think is just the times, um, you know, and I, th- I think that that will kind of change uh, simply because, as I've said so many times, the problems that our society faces are, are now kind of front of mind and obvious um, to people and I think the pandemic has only sort of accelerated for a lot of voters that reality where the fractures in our society are, where the places that need repair are, where the decision points and the debates that we need to have are are now not, not so easy to ignore. Um, Maria, I was just going to come in there and ask you about this, you know, this, you know, historical trend between alternation between government and opposition. I mean, don't you think in this election there was an expression from the electorate that that that, that is not satisfactory anymore, that, that they want more colour, more vibrancy, more, more descriptive representation in the parliament because the same old, same old, regardless of whether it's the coalition or Labor, that's that's not cutting it. It's not. It's not what is getting action on certain issues, and it's also not what people feel that is their representative in parliament. Do you, do you think there's yeah. a? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, and that I think that's like a, a long term sort of um, trend. I mean, Australia is a really nice example of Diverge's law, right? Which is like one of the few laws that we have in political science, which basically says that the voting system will govern the type of government formation or coalition formation that you get. And and we see that, where we see that in the in the in the Senate we have a proportional system and we haven't had government majorities for forty years in the in the lower house. We have this proportional representational system. Yes, that's right, with the only exception of the the Howard um final term. uh, Exactly, the nail in the um, coffin term of his government. Well, you know what? Well, what, what we can all criticise the Howard government, but I will say this for them: they they chose to do something with their majority, <laughs> which you true. cannot say about the previous government. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, they lost office on the back of it, uh, but they they. They still believed in something. That's true, um, and they may have been going to go out the door anyway. They were basically twelve years in office at that time, yeah, pretty, pretty close to it. Yeah, it's a long uh, time. Yeah, so in, for a government, but there's um, no doubt that yeah. having the numbers in the Senate uh, tempted the tempted tempted Howard to some um, you know flights of ideological fancy in the industrial relations area, which had always been a great you know uh, favorite of his, and uh, you know they ended up having to sort of roll back. Uh, some you know put the safety net back into work choices and so forth, but it was all a bit too late by then. 
Because that's well, the term I mean, that yeah, also made Barnaby Joyce. It was kind of productive. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, the whole know, thing. I mean, but it was a government that, as I say, as, as we were both saying, you know, was probably on the slide by that time anyway, just out of sheer fatigue. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears> but I guess, sorry, to, to, I just, could I, I, I was going to answer the question, Mark. I, I know I was being too much of an academic and, and going back <laughs> to theory. But my, my point was, is that I, I think voters have actually kind of seen the outcomes are different in the Senate because we do not have two-party domination and that over time they have worked out in the lower house that they can vote more strategically than they have in the past to generate different outcomes. Um, and because the two major parties uh, have essentially, they work as interest aggregators at the centre, so there's more and more voters who are clearly unsatisfied. And, and we have sort of seen a resurgence of the community because people, as as you said, Caroline, are frankly sick and tired of being told that something can't be done because it doesn't suit the game of politics. People are tired of being told that politics is a game. Yeah. It's not a game. No, that's a very good point. Let's take a very quick break and continue this discussion in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, uh, you you mentioned before, Shirley, that uh, you were uh, on the ground there in Goldstein. And, of course, that was uh, one of the key teal seats where Zoe Daniel was successful against Tim Wilson, the uh, the, the longstanding and quite controversial, I suppose, um, uh, member of the Liberal Party for that area. What what did what did you take from? I mean, how confident were you? You were campaigning for uh, helping out in the campaign for Zoe Daniel. How confident were you of her doing well? I mean, what was the feeling on the ground? Well, it was really interesting because right at the beginning, we didn't think we had a hope in hell. Well, I didn't. Um, we knew we had a very narrow chance. Uh, the the strengths of the Daniel campaign, just as the strengths of the other successful uh, community-backed independent campaigns, was the fact that when they came out on those very, very clear platforms of integrity, climate, equality, and also a clean tech-based prosperity, those were actually the issues that were resonating very strongly with their electorates. And as a result of that, a whole lot of people jumped off the couch and volunteered to work for them. So they these candidates had in excess of 1% of their voters, potential voters, actually working for them, door knocking, leafleting, 
standing on railway stations, working on their pre-poll booths. So you had, you know, a, 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 I guess a multiplication effect from that because those people then they put up um, they they put up signs in their front yards, and of course that's a whole another story. Yeah, that uh, that, that saw some people in court <laughs> at one stage, didn't it? Yeah, that was hilarious. I mean, right at the very beginning, you had, uh, you know, lots and lots of signs going up around Goldstein. And so Tim Wilson got very angry and kept um, ringing the council. They actually took the the residents to court. And, of course, ultimately there was a very humiliating defeat and back down. It was a massive own goal. I mean, <laughs> and Blind Freddy could see it. it was, here was a community movement in favour of change people actually putting signs in their houses. I mean, you know, Australians historically haven't done a lot of that kind of personal identification with politics in the way they might about footy teams and so forth. And the local member complains about it and just draws, you know, hangs a lantern over how much support his opponent has in the community. It's extraordinary. Mm, Particularly a sort of former IPA staffer who's been a a huge advocate of um, free speech, even for highly controversial views. But anyway, mm. so that was that was a wonderful own goal because it gave a huge presence to the Daniel campaign and it also signalled very early on to voters in the electorate that it was a real thing and that it, the incumbent was worried about it and that was before we'd even got going. Look, I, I um, did a little bit on the there – uh, there were two pre-polls uh, stations in, located inside the electorate open for two weeks and we had massive, massive pre-polling. It was quite unexpected. I did a little bit in the first week and a lot in the second week and so there were queues stretching out for over an hour um, and they seldom got shorter than a 15 to 20 minute wait for the whole time that I was there. So I talked to hundreds and hundreds of people on the ground and by the middle of the uh, second week, I just knew we had it. I knew we had it. The feeling was so strong. It had, it had been very muted to begin with. But by the Thursday before the election, the number of people who were coming out of that polling booth saying, thanks, guys, thanks for everything you're doing. Um, it's so great to finally have a voice. Uh, I was talking to people in the line not trying to persuade them how to vote, obviously. It was too late at that point. Um, but just saying, you know, would you mind telling me why you made the voting decision that you're about to make? And they would say things like, I'm really worried about the climate. Mm. Really, really worried about the climate. We need an, we need some independence in there to keep to make sure that real action actually happens. People were, were very concerned, men and women, were concerned about the events in Parliament relating to women. I think Brittany Higgins really resonated in that electorate. Uh, they were very concerned about the lack of gender equality and integrity. Now, a lot has been made of, you know, these wealthy suburbs, they only care about tax. Well, they care about tax, but they also care about their taxes being wasted on rorts and corruption. And there were a lot of incredibly angry people about the rorts, and they said, we need an ICAC, and they were disgusted by the um, the lack of a federal ICAC, the broken promise, and they wanted to make sure that Labor would have, you know, a very strong reason to actually put a proper ICAC, federal ICAC in place. Carolyn, this really goes back to uh, the point we were talking about earlier about these Campaigns being so organic and so ground up, and 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 it's that 
it's that community legitimacy that um, is their credibility, really, and and has been, and that's been the case ever since Kathy McGowan's, you know, groundbreaking campaign in in Indi, um, and we should, you know, reflect, I think, on the fact that Indi has remained again in independent hands. Uh, Helen Haynes having won now a second term. But, you know, that that whole thing about understanding what's happening on the ground and people working together, the sense that, I mean, it drove the parties nuts, obviously. It drove the Liberal Party nuts having all of those volunteers there because for the first time ever in seats like Goldstein and Kuyong, they were they were facing sort of numerically similar and sometimes bigger campaigns against them. You know, the organisation, the resources being put forward were extraordinary. They were like, you know, they were they were the the, the, leveling, the the playing field had been levelled up. Yeah, I mean, the election volunteering is is remarkable, and in some seats, you know, they had over over one thousand, even two thousand volunteers. But behind all that was also a range of ways in which the electorate and community was building and having conversations around what kind of representation and voice are they seeking. So people weren't just asked to stand at the pre-polls and, you know, hand out, you know, stick core flutes in their front yard. They're actually asked to engage in conversations with fellow constituents about what what are we seeking, what what are the issues here, what do we want? And that in I wouldn't say that's across all the community independents, but I'd I'd say 75% of the 22 that stood, you know, with a community base did run these sorts of kitchen table conversations or 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 rich surveys which gave people um, a sense of possibility for change. Yeah, so I right. think it's also about understanding that the citizens were called not just to come and volunteer on election day, it was actually to engage in a conversation about what, where do we want improvement and what's it going to look like. And what I find interesting is that some of these so-called teal candidates use this community label without having done that base work, that, that community work. Um, and that's that sort of nuanced picture, I guess, is something we're hoping to draw out in our research to really understand, well, may, maybe it is all about the campaigning. Maybe all that matters at the end of the day is that, that you know, volunteer base or, or how much of this um, community organising and seeded work is necessary to get people over the line. Just to draw you out on that uh, one point you made there, Tell us a little bit about the distinction between what you described as the candidates who did come from that community process and some who didn't, because I suppose there's been a tendency to, in in shorthanding all of this, to lump them all in together. But in some cases, there's there's kind of quite a process behind the selection of a candidate. In other seats, the candidate has stepped forward sort of outside of that process. That's right. So, I mean, if we go go back even further, so there's around the country, there's about 40, estimated 40 so-called voices for groups, variously named, that have have um, said, look, we, we want to improve electoral representation in our electorate. Now, of those 40 community groups, some have been relatively inactive that is, they're not sort of actively engaged in socials and, and so so that sort of reduced down to about 30. And of those, 22 either selected or endorsed a, a candidate. So not all groups, Voices for Groups, decided to put forward a candidate. So in some cases, what, they're just trying to influence the candidates who are there? Yeah, so, right. so their role, so if you look at um, Nichols, for example, Voices for Nichols, they decided rather than 
select or endorse a candidate. Their role was to actually hold community forums to get all the candidates there and to provide an opportunity for all candidates to demonstrate to the electorate, well, you know, what, what am I standing for? What am I going to promise, etc. Are you just some dolt for the party or are you actually a genuine representative? Are you proposing to be a genuine representative of this area? Those sort of Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, we had a similar thing in the ACT here, mm. um, at the at least in the lower house. So so. Then there were groups that wanted a candidate but couldn't find it, so Mm. Wentworth. Now, Wentworth did have a candidate, Allegra Spender, but she wasn't endorsed by the the community group that sort of ran all these conversations. Yeah, right. Um, And then you had um, about what we estimate to be about 22 that really did have um, a a strong community base put forward uh, or either went through a very elaborate selection process or someone stepped forward and they endorsed that person. As a candidate, right. So very, very diverse, um, and they tend to and, and some it, and some diverse outcomes too. There, exactly, because in some yeah. cases, those candidates have done those ones that have come up through that that more rigorous process have done well. And in other cases, it's the candidate who's essentially uh, drawn the organisation to them. In the case of say Allegra Spender, as you say, yeah. You I mean, with. I don't. Our analysis is still ongoing, but it does. I don't. I don't think it's just related to this community base. I think mm. it depends on. You know the other candidates, yeah, like the situational factors, yeah. Um, and also, there's definitely a metro, um, provincial, rural story here, where the the metro voices for candidates or community candidates had much more success than the more conservative rural yeah. seats. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I was just looking at that list bef- uh, before, and I mean, obviously, Indi is a a um, regional seat. Mayo has some in in South Australia has some sort of regional areas in it, but pretty much the rest of them. You know, McKellar, North Sydney, Goldstein, Wentworth, Kuyong, Fowler, Kennedy, Melbourne, Clark, Indi. Oh, not Indi, obviously. Um, Warringah. These are all very much metropolitan seats. Yeah, so. I mean, they're the seats that that that, that changed hands, yeah, right? Yeah, the ones. But if yeah. you if you dig in deeper to the the you know look if you look at Kalea and which is in and around Orange Mudgee, if you look at um, Calpa, which you know is is up near Port Macquarie, you you see that the community independent got upwards of so twenty twenty six percent of first preferences. So there's a story there that's not really being told if you just look at well who 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 got elected eventually. But so the the swings have been enormous um, and the seats have become more competitive. And mm. that, in a way, is what a lot of these community groups were, were hoping in the, in the first place because they've, one of the frustrations is, is that they're sick of being safe seats and that their vote doesn't feel like it's counting. And if they've moved their seat from a safe seat to a marginal seat, then that, for many communities, is a win. Yeah, well, it, it certainly brings more attention. Shirley, I cut you off before. Well, I was just going to say that I, uh, I was just agreeing with what Carol was saying. And on the ground, uh, you really saw that that there was a machine being assembled in the background very rapidly. We talked about building the plane while it was in the air. But there was a, a wide array of very high-quality, experienced people who were already ready to step in and help a lot of these community-backed independents because of the Voices movement they had they had already gathered together the the kinds of people who can actually get candidates electorate, and I think that's what blindsided some of the incumbents. You know, you look at an independent, you think that they're just going to have a ragtag collection of people that they can pull together hastily to help them in an election. Well, that that was not the feeling you got on the ground in Kuyong or in Goldstein. You got the feeling very clearly 
that these that these were well run, highly professional campaigns, and that a lot of that is attributable to the Voices movement. And I mean, the parties really only have themselves to blame for this, you know. I mean, through through the sort of use of public funds, right, to in effect buy votes and to be so shameless about it. I mean, what have they actually told the electorate? Well, you should make your seat marginal. Otherwise, you're not going to get anything from us, um, you know, or if you wrong, if you vote the wrong way, you're not going to get anything from us. I mean, I think what was sort of fascinating around that discussion of the fake independence, right, which was a, a sort of typical line used by a lot of incumbents, is it sort of really kind of hung a lantern yeah. on the fact that they were unable to engage on substantive policy matters with their interlocutor because of party discipline, right? And and that this is a real challenge going forward for both parties and perhaps even more so for Labor because they have tighter party discipline um, than the Liberal Party, you know, um, where technology... Yes, I've heard that argument mentioned before, but I I don't know that it's completely right. I mean, I, I have my doubts about that because I think as a party of reform, as distinct from a more traditional conservative party, Labor is, is 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 less sort of stationary on these issues and more inclined to be on the dynamic side of the equation. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether it will, whether, you know, whether there'll be an emergence of anti-government candidates running as independents uh, with community backing in some of these seats next time around. Well, I think the issues that drive the vote in like traditional liberal seats and traditional Labor seats are different, right? Um, And I think what remains to be seen in the case of Labor's heartland seats is what type of community organising and social capital actually exists. I mean, uh, you know, I think something that is kind of overlooked in the Teal seats is the fact that you know, this, these are populations. If you look at their ability to gain government funding compared to places like, so, you know, Wentworth, et cetera, New, North Sydney, their ability to extract government funding for public infrastructure compared to somewhere like Newcastle, which is clearly poorer, is actually quite a bit larger, right? Which goes to the fact that those people who live in those uh, places have a lot more social capital, a lot more skills, know how to coordinate and organise. Uh, you know, uh, have the capacity to run community-based campaigns and to pull in professionals to help them run campaigns. You know, country electorates have the advantage of the fact that they do have high social capital, that people know each other and they have those networks. It's not clear that it works the same way in Labor seats. It probably would look different. Yeah, that's a very good point. Excellent point. Just uh, just on that uh, issue around uh, the resourcing in the seats, I mean, it, one of the fascinating things that happened in Goldstein was that quite a lot was made by Tim Wilson of an announcement of a swimming pool in the electorate that was, you know, I guess general part of pork barrelling in, in an election, and it, it sank without a trace. What you have is a very affluent bayside suburb and the promise of a local community swimming pool, I very, very much doubt, would have influenced many voters in any any way, shape, or form. They probably all got their own pools. They probably <laughs> many of them do, and they didn't. He didn't even know where he was going to put it or where it was going. So it wasn't like any particular community was getting a new pool, and they had the bay for goodness sakes. Um, 
so I actually think that those sorts of promises of here, have a, have a have change rooms for your sports ground or have a pool or have this or have that probably resonates more in areas that are more disadvantaged. It, it didn't, it certainly didn't make any difference in Goldstone. Now, I want to um, quickly get on to just get a comment from each of you about, um, about you know, the advent of, of Dutton and Little Proud in those two uh, places, but it would be remiss not to... Uh, mention at this point um, the gender aspect of what we've been talking about as well because these candidates are almost all of them are women. Not all of the crossbench will be women, but all these new entrants are women. Uh, actually, I think there's one green in, in um, Queensland who's, who's, who's a, a bloke, but it's a, it's a very strong element of it, isn't it, Carolyn, the, the, the gender aspect in terms of and, – and also, you know, there's that professional thing as well. They're highly qualified for the most part. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a gender aspect to the community organising underneath uh, all these movements, and that that is reflected reflective of volunteering across the country, particularly informal volunteering, where people kind of come out and help, and it's usually women that that, that have the um, the willingness to do that that kind of work. And and um, as Shirley sort of alluded, there's a there's a lot of groundwork and grunt work that's done here in these, um, not just in the campaigning, but just in in trying to spread the word and and get people to donate their time. Um, and then of course the candidates that were attracted to either um, put their hand up or were endorsed, they tended to be women. And and I've, I've done some interviews with different groups around this and I think it's a combination of people being inspired by Haynes and Stegall and other and McGowan um, that that they can imagine playing that role a combination of feeling frustrated that, that that these you know men don't don't speak speak on behalf of the issues that they care about and also a range of people feeling they've got a good skill set for, for what it takes to be a political leader in the current times and that that kind of combination, I think, just just attracted a lot of women. And yes, they are mostly highly professionalised, well-educated women. But then so are our, our male class, you know, as well. So I think the, the 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 candidates that get up tend to have that kind of very polished professional um, experience because that you've got to talk to the electorate, talk to the media. So I think it's not not for nothing that they are well. Well scripted and polished, but it, it is it is a very female picture. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to to look. It's going to actually be visually represented in the parliament. I, I've spent probably too much of my life sitting in the press gallery there above the speaker's chair, looking down on the chamber from that angle. And the crossbench now is not only going to be bigger, significantly bigger, fourteen strong, uh, but it is going to be mostly women, and women don't wear blue suits and blue ties. Yep. They yep. wear different colors. That's right. And so there's going to be this kind of kind of really different I think striking presence of this crossbench and again going to your point I mean uh, you know the old you can't be what you can't see thing. People have seen uh, Zali Stegall do what she's been doing and Helen Haynes and Kathy, Kathy McGowan before that. And that has had a, a, a quite interesting impact. Um, Maria, do you think it's going to um you know make it very hard for the Liberals to move these people on to get these seats back? That's a great question. I mean, in a nutshell, at the moment, I would I would say probably. I mean, I don't like to make essentialist arguments, you know, that women will come into the parliament and things will improve. But I do think their presence and their weight on the crossbench um, will hopefully and, and also um, – you know, Labor traditionally is more likely to liberalise the standing orders. The coalition's usually more likely to tighten them back up to favour the government. 
And I think, you know, if if the parliament behaved better, performed better and was more deliberative, I think that voters that voted for the Teals would, would say, I'd like a bit more of that. I thought it was really interesting that Dutton said, we're not a moderate party, we're not a conservative party, we're a liberal party. Um, Whatever which, that meant. Well, exactly, right? I mean, traditionally... <laughs> Traditionally, that mean is that is that a broad church of moderates and conservatives, or is it actually something something new? I don't know. Um, but I it, it wasn't clear to me when he sort of said, I guess that we'll be focusing on the outer suburban regions and uh, as the outer suburbs and the regions. I, I don't know. I mean, that's I think what they've been doing. I mean that's actually it's, where the problem lies. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure there's enough seats out there for them to win. I mean, um, I thought it was really revealing when Jane Hume said, "Well, people have forgotten that liberal values are Australian values," and I, I think it speaks to that point we were making earlier about Victoria, which is, you know, the, the Liberal Party has often struggled to recall and remember that Australia really is a utilitarian, very collectivist society. And when they have um, strayed too far from that path, they they don't do well at the polls. And when they begrudgingly accept that reality, they do better. So, I mean, I think it it's, remains to be seen um, what the Liberal Party will actually, like what road they will actually take. I mean, what Dutton said could frankly mean anything you know he also said it was important that we look after those that couldn't look after them themselves so but on at face value if we were to take the party at face value and how they have reacted to the loss and their past behavior i i would give the teals a good shot of staying there for as long as they wanted to. I think the really interesting question is what happens when they choose to to retire. Yeah, Shirley, a final word to you on this because, uh, you know, as we've just all been hearing for weeks and weeks before the election, you had to get to 76 seats. Labor's got there. That means the, the Libs or the LNP together, the coalition, has to get to 76 to, to uh, take government uh, next time or the time after that. And some people have rightly pointed out that getting to 76 without the Teals, without regaining these seats, it's it's very hard to imagine. As Maria says, there probably isn't uh, the gains to be made around the suburbs. And if they do just simply give up on the inner cities, then um, uh, that will be pretty extraordinary. So it's a it's a pretty big task. They've some pretty big decisions they've got to make in terms of how they position themselves. Yeah, that's true. One of the things that people keep saying is that the candidates who stood in the so-called teal seats, these all these women really should have been Liberal Party candidates. And, and I laugh every time I hear that because they never have been. I mean, if you actually look at the history of the party in recent years, what they have failed to do is to actually put women forward as candidates in, in winnable seats. And to say that women like uh, Zoe Daniel or Monique Ryan really should have been standing for the Liberal Party, well, if they had stood, if they had stood for pre-selection, would they have even been selected? I think I don't think voters would actually um, think that that was true. And I think the other thing to think about when we think about these women candidates getting up was that when you talk to voters. A, a well-qualified female candidate was in no way, shape or form a negative for male voters. 
and it was a positive for women. Mm. And it seems to me that this is something that the Liberal Party is going to have to get its head around. It's one thing to say we're going to go out on a listening tour and actually hunt out women in the uh, suburbs and the regions and, and try to figure out what they think by listening to them. It's another thing to actually uh, look across the uh, parliament and see that there are actually women already sitting in the House and in the Senate uh, who, who have had a voice and who are listening to all voters, not just female voters, and to think, oh, we need to change because we're actually doing something wrong. And, and of course, the, the, the problem for them, uh, for the Liberal Party in this case, is that how are they going to campaign against these people? I mean, when you think about it, how do you campaign against people who are advocating for faster action on climate change and, and, and driving, uh, influencing those policy outcomes, who want to do something about corruption in politics and the, the whole question of integrity, who are looking to make sure the parliament is more representative? These are pretty mainstream issues, as and many people have pointed out. Climate change is no longer some left-wing idea ideological uh, sort of preoccupation. It's it's the concern, rightly, of the, the entire mainstream, and that's what this election has shown. This is arguably the first genuinely climate change-friendly election that we've seen in Australia. So it's going to be very tough. It's also true to say that uh, independent candidates, fairly rare though they've been in Australian politics, when they've won through, if they've been good, they've tended to consolidate. Uh, and I think it's actually extremely hard from where we sit at the moment to imagine unseating some of these people unless they turn out to be real dud members or, as as you say, Maria, you make the good point that some of them may decide to only do one term or two terms or whatever it is. They, um, you know, other things can happen in life. People can get sick or, or whatever it might be. But, but broadly speaking, I think it's a really tough task having broken – the uh, the sort of lifelong link with their own constituency in these heartlands. It's, I mean, half of the Liberal Party's money in Victoria came from Kuyong in terms of the fundraising activities. Suddenly, Kuyong's no longer a Liberal seat. So th- it's a world of pain. And from what I saw of Peter Dutton talking uh, yesterday uh, at his first press conference, he's not really sort of latched onto this. You know, he's making the point that. Um, uh, the Liberal Party lost more seat, more votes to the to the right than to the left, which is sort of, you know, one of those sort of statistical fudges, really, because he's aggregating the number of votes that they lost in in the teal seats against the number of votes they lost across the country to um, United Australia Party and Pauline Hanson, and saying it's you know forty thousand in the former and two hundred thousand in the latter. Yeah, that's true, but they got all those two hundred thousand back for a start in uh, in 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 those other places around the country and. Uh, you know, I think they'll, they'll really struggle to get these seats back. Carolyn, I sense you wish to make one final comment. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, I, I do think um, some of these independents have their work cut out for them, not so much in their constituency service, because that's what they're good at, mm-hmm. but in their parliamentary work. And in in my research with on Indi, I mean, one of the things that was so interesting there, certainly with McGowan and then then Haynes, you know, is, is how much they um, talked about the quality of their staff the parliamentary staff yeah. and their know-how. Now, they can bring staff up from, from their electorate, but someone needs to have the parliamentary know-how, the Canberra know-how. Now, the party machinery has that usually ready to go for candidates. So you've got now, you know, 12, 15 
independent candidates scrambling in a pretty tight labour market to try and find excellent advisors who are able to, um, you know, basically get their head around a whole range of legislation. I mean, that's the thing about an independent. They have to be across everything. They don't have the machinery of, par- of the parties to, to do that work for them. So so that that's going to be interesting to see how they set their offices up and, and how they manage to navigate that, that workload. Yeah, very good point. And uh, because we're out of time, we're going to have to end there. But uh, there's so many other elements of this that we can discuss. And I guess we will get a chance to talk about these things uh, a fair bit more, Maria, as we go forward. Absolutely. Thank you to you and, of course, thank you to Carolyn Hendricks and to Shirley Leach for your excellent uh, analysis and on-the-ground comments. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, But, uh, as usual, we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.